Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another Bitcoin Standard Podcast seminar. Hey, Safedeen. I have a question. I saw you answering to a thread on Twitter. She was talking against the Bitcoin Standard and was saying, in times when you need monetary extension, you need to print money. And the Bitcoin Standard wouldn't help because you can't print the money you need. And I totally agree with what you answered, which is if a country is on a Bitcoin Standard, this country wouldn't even have to print in the first place because the crisis wouldn't happen. And I would ask you to uh, elaborate a little bit more about that. Yeah, so there's this, um, somebody on the Twitter, um, I just adopted thread right now. She was saying, 
why Bitcoin will never become the global reserve currency. Uh, but in fact, blah, blah, Bitcoin as the global reserve currency would be one of the worst ideas of the 21st century, which, you know, sounds quite an achievement given that we've already had lockdowns and face diapers and we have people who believe that cow farts are boiling the oceans. Uh, so <laughs> that's pretty tough competition for Bitcoin uh, right off the bat. But uh, let's see her case for why <laughs> uh, this one is. So she says, number one, ultrasound money makes it ultra difficult for anyone to get out of recessions. People are having a knee-jerk reaction to monetary policy excess right now. Fed prints too much. Asset prices all inflate. Your money is worth less. It helps the rich and hurts the poor. Boo, boo, hoo. Well, I'm adding the boo, hoo. Um, you know, all of these little tiny uh, insignificant problems are kind of brushed over. She says, all true. But, and this is where you know the good stuff is going to come. But having the pendulum swing the other extreme is not the solution. In fact, extremely short-sighted. The world got off the gold standard bandwagon for a reason. It was super clunky and made recessions crises worse than they should be. So, of course, this is uh, you know right at the heart of the fiat standard. Um, this is uh, the argument is that gold people got off gold because it made recessions a crises worse than they should be. And now, this is a very common uh, meme uh, that you learn if you had the misfortune of going to an American university or pretty much anywhere, any university. And it, it's a very common idea among economists. It's amazing how pervasive it is. You know, uh, it was written about in the 1930s and it's been in the textbooks ever since and nobody challenges it. And it's built on the idea that uh, what caused the Great Depression was the gold standard. What prevented the recovery from the stock market crash was the gold standard. And that's what uh, uh, turned the stock market crash into a long recession. And the U.S. and the world economy only started recovering from the uh, recession of uh, the Great Depression only after they abandoned the gold standard. And this is completely ridiculous propaganda. For several reasons, which if you read the fiat standard will become very apparent because the first few chapters of the fiat standard uh, get into this history. Um, first of all, the main problem is that the gold standard, the world did not get off the gold standard in 1936. The world got off the gold standard in 1914. And that's what created the uh, economic crisis and, uh, at the end of World War I. And that's what then drove the inflationary monetary policy throughout the 1920s. And that's why we had the stock market crash. And that's why we had the depression. So it was going off the gold standard that created the global depression in the first place. And um, uh, which they went off because of World War I and they could just issue more bonds. Exactly. And that's the key point, which they always ignore that, you know, they think that, you know, the gold standard was just, it, it, it broke down. You know, we had this good technology for running money that was working in the 17th and 18th and 19th century, but then the 20th century comes along and gold suddenly breaks down in the 1930s and it's no longer conducive for the tools of monetary policy and so we had to abandon it which is ridiculous because the reason they abandoned the gold standard was to finance war that's why all these governments went off the gold standard so once they went off the gold standard they uh, 
uh, you know, the, the the reason they did it was to finance the war. That's and, and I get into the history in England, and it is discussed in uh, in depth. And there's there's an interesting story that just came out three years ago, where uh, how the whole thing started. This is quite amazing. It was discovered by a bunch of interns at the Bank of England. Well, I'm not sure if it's intern or a staff economist, but people were doing some digging in the archives of the Bank of England, and I discussed this in detail in the Fiat Standard. And while they were digging, they found out how the Bank of England essentially engaged in quantitative easing in 1914 in order to finance the uh, printing of, uh, uh, in order to finance the spending for the war. So the Bank of England, the the Treasury, had uh, issued bonds for the war, and they expected the British people to just buy them up. They issued, I think, something like 400 million pounds at that point. And the British people um, bought only a third of these bonds, which was a huge uh, surprise for the Treasury because, you know, they were going out there to fight a war against those pesky Europeans and finally sort out Europe. And all they needed was just a little bit of money and then they would all be happy. And, you know, we would just uh, support our allies in World War One and win this August bank holiday as it was expected to be called. But what they did was, since two-thirds of the bonds weren't sold, the Bank of England went and bought two-thirds of the bond issue, and they bought them in the name of two members of the Bank of England staff, uh, this treasurer, I think, and some other guy. Two people in the Bank of England, they went and they bought the bonds with their own under their own name, but using the uh, Bank of England's money. And that's what subsidized the war. And of course, that then led to inflation and that, that led to the Bank of England having to hoard the gold coins because they were running short on gold. And so they confiscated gold effectively by telling banks not to use uh, – to receive payment in gold and only make payment in uh, paper money and to return all that pay- gold – to their banks and their central bank, to the central bank. And so the central bank spent four years collecting all the gold in uh, England and Scotland and uh, the rest of the UK. And they used it to borrow, they used it as collateral to borrow from American financiers to keep the war going. And of course, as the war going, the expenditure increased, they needed more money. So effectively, they took the gold from the British people. They confiscated it and used it as uh, collateral to borrow in order to finance war spending. And effectively, that's kind of what allowed the British to uh, last in the war uh, long. But of course, everybody did the same thing. You know, the Germans were doing the same thing and the Austrians, everybody was printing. The reason the, uh, I, the reason that the British and the Americans won was that the Americans were the last to go off the gold standard. So in fact, this is another common stupid, uh, statist, uh, argument for inflationary money, which is that if you print inflationary money, then you win the war. Wrong. If you print inflationary money, you devalue your currency. And when your currency is devalued, you lose the war. So if you look at, um, the, the the Bitcoin standard in chapter four, I have data on the exchange rates for World War One countries' currencies, and you see that uh, the Germans and the Austrians began 
to witness the value of their currency collapse. And that's when they lost the war. So the more inflation you have, the more likely you are to witness your currency to value. And that would be a major disaster. In other words, you can't really um, cheat and win a war through inflation. Um, you're just... Uh, you know, you could achieve the same objectives by taxation. And if you don't have enough money from taxation, inflation is not going to make a difference. What actually caused the British uh, to win the war was the fact that the U.S. was the last to go off the gold standard. The U.S. was still on the gold standard until 1917 because it didn't enter the war until later. And so during the years from 1914 until 17, we had three years of massive bleeding of gold from Europe to the U.S., all the way, not all, but a lot of Europeans who had money sent a lot of their gold from their European banks because there was war in Europe and because there was inflation and they were worried about inflation. They sent it to American banks. So a lot of gold accumulated in the U.S. and that strengthened the U.S. Uh, financial system and strengthened the dollar. And that's why when the U.S. entered the war, it had a strong currency and um, – it uh, a little bit of uh, inflation could go a very long way against countries that had already been inflating for two, three, four years. So it wasn't the inflation that won the war. It was the lack of inflation at the U.S. Um, that's, uh, that's, I think, the key. And inflation is, is what allowed the war to go on very long. If it wasn't for inflation, uh, if they were still all on a gold standard and if they couldn't go off the gold standard uh, like they did in 1914, most likely the war would have ended in a month or two or three or six or whatever, uh, like most wars in the 19th century would end. Or at least the, the, the key difference was not so much in the duration, it was in the fact that the wars were fought between uh, combatant armies in battlefields rather than these total wars where the entire economy and the entire civilian population was deemed uh, targets and so people were fighting in cities and the war was extremely destructive. And pretty much nothing came out of World War One that mattered. Um, you know, it's not like uh, it's not like the U.S. took over Central Europe and turned it into the 51st uh, state. They didn't uh, occupy uh, Europe. The British had no intention, or the U Americans, they had no intention of taking over these countries or invading them or winning territory. And if you look at the territorial changes that happened between the countries of Central Europe. They were largely inconsequential. I mean, it wasn't a big deal. So Poland, Germany, um, it, 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 it wasn't, uh, uh, it, it wasn't this massive realignment. And, um, the main effect was to get rid of the monarchies, replace the monarchies with, uh, republics, which, has worked out catastrophically, of course. But um, whether it was a monarchy or a republic, you know, still Austrians were still in Austria ruled by Austrians and uh, Hungarians the same and Germans and Poles and uh, French. So there were very little territorial wins. So the four extra years that of murder that fiat given gave us wouldn't have really changed the world significantly. It's not like, you know, this is what allowed us to win and therefore... Uh, you know, now uh, we've liberated all of Europe from its native inhabitants and turned it into um, a civilized American colony. You can't even say that. There, was, um, the, there wasn't really anything that was worthwhile as a, as, as a war objective. It was just insanity because these governments had printers and they could just continue to uh, destroy each other. Um, so 
Um, Milton Friedman, one of my favorite stories about Milton Friedman is that um, he's considered the prime monetary historian of the U.S. and he's got a huge amount of following and fans. And his book, The Monetary History of the United States, has um, – it's about 800 pages or something like that. It's an enormous uh, book. But it's mainly just a bunch of uh, statistics which uh, are uh, cherry-picked and selectively interpreted in order to achieve the conclusion that he wants, which is one simple conclusion, which is uh, that the central bank should always reflate the uh, monetary system and the financial system whenever there is a stock market crash or any kind of liquidity problem. And so, uh, you know, that's why the chapter on the Great Depression begins on the morning of the stock market crash. And the chapter before it ends in 1921. So this entire book, which studies the monetary history of the U.S. in uh, hundreds of pages, and whose main focus is the chapter on the Great Depression, has exactly zero pages dedicated to the period leading up to the Great Depression. It's not even like they discuss it and then don't mention the causes. It's just you finish Chapter 7, and it ends in 1921 or 1922 or something like that. And then you start Chapter 8, and it moves to 1929 or something like that. Absolutely no mention of anything that happened before. So the starting point is that one day everybody woke up and the stock market was crashing. You know, the stocks were crashing and then things started getting bad. And then the money supply collapsed because of the deflationary crash that happened in the stock market and in the housing market. So the money supply collapsed and the central bank did not stop the money supply from collapsing. And that's what caused the Great Depression. That's the story from the monetarist perspective. And that's also the story that the Keynesians stick to. Um, so, but, but the Keynesians don't focus on the reflationary part of the um, uh, story. The Keynesians focus on the initial inflationary part. So the Keynesians are the ones who are in the 1920s telling you we need more inflation. And then the, uh, and then the, uh, when that causes a stock market crash, the monetarists are the ones who say, oh no, you shouldn't listen to the Keynesians. You should listen to us. We know how to fix that. And guess what? <laughs> it's also money printing. So, you know, they, the, the, uh, the Keynesians get you drunk and then the uh, monetarists come and tell you, I have the best uh, hangover cure and it's more alcohol. And that's how basically you keep the uh, economy going, where it's just one uh, bender after another and delaying all of the hangovers and turning them into one massive uh, liver uh, damage episode that's going to end very, very, very badly. Um, so they skip that part, of course. Uh, it, it, they don't teach them that. The, the person who wrote this uh, tweet is has a PhD in macroeconomics, so obviously they don't teach her anything about the uh, lead up to the uh, to the Great Depression. So uh, then it just looks like, well, you know, the world uh, the world was on the gold standard, and then the stock market crashed, and then the gold standard prevented us from fixing the stock market crash. Sounds like a reasonable idea if you have no idea what 
has been going on, which most economists have. And so uh, there was a guy called Barry Eichengreen who wrote a book called Golden Fetters, I think, which was all about this, which is, you know, uh, the gold was what held back the world economies. And it's 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 such a stupid book. It's uh, it's you know the the uh, the the struggle of the heroic brave central bankers who are trying to help the population and help the economy recover and help the government achieve the economic recovery. Um, but they were being held back by these golden fetters of the gold standard, and then finally they abandon the gold standard, and then the recovery begins. And of course, this is nonsense because uh, another reason that it is nonsense, you know, we've been going through the reasons from 1914, but they went off the gold standard in their definition in 1934. That's when uh, Roosevelt confiscated the gold in the U.S. and um, banned private ownership of gold and uh, bought gold from people at a 40% discount. Or was it a 60% discount? No, 40% discount. Uh, it was something like a 40% discount of the price of gold. So it was effectively a sovereign default. Nobody likes to call it that. And of course, the macroeconomics textbook don't call it that. But the U.S. did have a sovereign default in 1934. And it also, of course, had a sovereign default in 1971, 50 years ago today. So um, the uh, the default that happened in 1934 took the U.S. off the gold standard. But there was no recovery in the U.S. up until the World War Two ended, and until the New Deal practically ended, until most of the statutes of the New Deal ended. So uh, this is where the Keynesian uh, statistical nonsense begins. You know, they the government was producing a bunch of statistics in the 1930s, and government economics departments became a huge deal in the 1930s because they were the ones producing the statistics. And so there were all these indicators of recovery in the 1930s, which meant nothing because there was no real recovery. And then in the 1940s, of course, there was also no recovery because people were struggling badly because half the workforce or a very large number of the workforce was out fighting all over the world. Um, now, of course, in Keynesian uh, economics, um, if you're fighting and producing dead Germans or if you're fighting or if you're working and producing uh, food and houses, it all counts as GDP, right? It doesn't matter. And, no, the free market is not paying for uh, dead Europeans and dead Japanese people, but people want to eat and they would pay for uh, food. But if the government takes you from producing food and makes and puts you into the production of dead foreigners, then that's also part of GDP. So you can show a recovery in World War II. And this is, in my mind, one of the most criminal aspects of Keynesian economics, which is how they glorify war as a tool of economic recovery. And it just shows how absolutely dumb their economics is. But it also shows how these people have absolutely no sense of morality or conscience or um, uh, and any kind of um, moral compass whatsoever. Because if you can think of war as being a tool of economic recovery, where you put the fact, you are effectively saying that, you know, getting GDP number to go up is uh, something that's worth killing human beings for. And it's, uh, it, it just shows that you must be a sick person. And uh, so in the 1940s, if you think there was a recovery in World War II, then congratulations, you're a sick Keynesian idiot. Uh, and but the reality is the recovery only came after that, and so the, abandoning the gold standard failed um, by their metric. Abandoning the gold standard in 1934 
it did not produce a recovery. It, the recovery only came after World War II, and it only came when essentially the U.S. moved the world onto a dollar standard and started printing dollars and handing them out to the world and handing them out to Americans. Um, that's how. Um, that's how. That, that's how the economy was built. You know, the, the, the world needed dollars because the global trading system re- rested around the dollar at that point. So the U.S. could issue a, a lot of dollars and gain a lot of seniorage in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s after World War II ended. And this they did with a complete abandon. You know, the, the generations of people who grew up in the 1950s and 60s and 70s in the U.S., up, up until the 70s, you know, they call this uh, the golden era and they really love it. And in a sense, it was because it was, uh, you know, if you were if you were an American, you had the magic printer. Right? The, the Kantian effect was really strong at that time. And the U.S. had uh, taken a lot of gold from the rest of the world and had um, held it in its own uh, vaults and given them pieces of paper. And then they told them, you know, don't come looking for the gold. And then when they started to come looking for the gold, when they started feeling the inflation, that's when things started to get complicated in the U.S. in the 1950s, in the 1960s. And they did something called the gold pool, which got governments to bring, uh, which got governments to come and bring uh, a lot of gold into from their reserves and bring it onto the market to bring the price of the gold down because, you know, apparently there was a gold crisis. But, of course, the gold crisis was really just a dollar crisis. The gold wasn't becoming more expensive. The dollar was getting cheaper. And they kept trying to do those things throughout the 1960s. But then in 1971, um, but then in 1971, you know, the U.S. just went off. Uh, it, it, it's removed the last form of redemption of gold for uh, fiat money. Um, so then, uh, between 1934, they stopped, in 1934, they stopped using, they stopped letting Americans redeem gold for dollars, but they still allowed foreign central banks to take, uh, gold from, uh, the U.S., or at least that was the plan. But then in 1971, they closed that as well. And then there was no more link between the U.S. dollar and gold. So, um... Yeah, the, the idea that it was the gold standard that stopped this is, I think, ridiculous. And so uh, getting back to the tweet storm that we had started with, imagine if we had the Bitcoin standard when COVID hit. Everyone fled to safety. Bitcoin price would go up. Governments would rush to raise interest rates to counter the incentive of converting to Bitcoin so that they wouldn't lose their Bitcoin reserves. Now, this is confused, of course. Because, first of all, if we had a Bitcoin standard, governments could not be setting interest rates. There would be no such thing as government monetary policy setting interest rates because interest rates would be determined by the market. Uh, the government can't print Bitcoin, so the government can't sell, can't tell anybody how much to sell their Bitcoin for because, um, if, you know, the, the way that they manage monetary policy, the way that they control the interest rates is that they can control the quantity of the production of Dollars, so they can't do that to Bitcoin. Um, but she is correct in the fact that everybody would flee. Would uh, everybody would flee to Bitcoin? Well, not everybody, but a lot of people would. Uh, you go and buy Bitcoin because you know a lot of people who had useless thing that they needed to buy are not going to buy it. You know, and if there's a crisis, there's a war, there's an earthquake, there's a pandemic, or something of that sort. You know, you don't. 
spend money on your vacation, you keep the money in cash. Uh, you are going to be buying uh, an expensive car. You decide maybe I'll put the car aside. I'll stick with my old car for another year or two. So you keep cash on hand. So the demand for cash increases because there's uncertainty because you might lose your job. You might you might lose your job. You might lose your income. You might not be able to um, you might not be able to make payments on your mortgage or something like that. So you want to hold cash in case of uncertainty. And, of course, for the Keynesians, this is the cause of the recession. This is, well, not the cause. This is, a, this is not the cause of the original crash, but this is how the recession deepens. So there's a crash, and then people are scared, so they start holding the money. And because they're holding the money instead of spending it on uh, stupid things that they don't need, like uh, buying cars and buying uh, vacations, because they can't do that anymore, they end up um, uh, holding the cash holding large amounts of cash, and so they're not spending, and that creates unemployment, and that creates economic uncertainty, and that worsens the crisis. And so if people would stop spending, then the economy would be fixed. And so the role of monetary policy, and that's what these PhD economists think, is that the government is there to teach you to stop being responsible during times of crisis and to become a degenerate, high-time preference, irresponsible person. And if you won't spend your own money, they're just going to take the money that you've saved and devalue it so that they can spend, and then that will fix the economy. So if they devalue your money by 10%, let's say, then you have 10% of the price of that car or the vacation that you wanted. You have 10% of that now uh, has, has been lost to you, but you're able to uh, spend. Um, but the government has increased the total amount of spending in the economy because they've printed that new money and they've handed it out to their cronies. And so now you should be grateful because their cronies are going to buy stuff and uh, that will cause people to start hiring. Of course, this is nonsense. The, um, the reaction to a crisis is the correct way in which people interpret their actions could best protect them. So you think there's a crisis coming. Yeah, you start, you cut down on spending and you hold your cash. And you know what that does? It increases the value of cash, which is exactly the bailout that you want. You know, it's exactly the fiscal monetary policy support that people want. Because now everybody who's got cash, they watch their cash appreciate in terms of real goods and services. In other words, people stop buying the things that they don't need so that they can hold more cash. So the growth in the value of cash is a result of the fact that you are buying fewer cars and apples and oranges and uh, all of the things that you could possibly be buying. You start cutting down on it. So what does that do to their prices? It lowers their prices. So if you need to buy a car, if you need to buy a house, if you need to buy any of these goods, if you need to buy food at that time, what do you do? You find yourself that your cash, you know, you've lost your job, but at least your cash is appreciating and all of those things are depreciating. So it's how the market naturally adjusts to this condition. It's how people adjust and it's how the market adjusts. The, the, the value of the cash rises and then the Purchasing power increases, and so people who lost their jobs or people who have financial difficulties, they are able to use their savings more effectively. And of course, in a world like that, this is the thing that also they don't teach them. In a world like that, people would expect their money to appreciate over time rather than be an inflationary mess. So people would have savings. Everybody would have savings. In that kind of world, everybody has savings. And, um, you know, having savings is like having a home almost. Everybody would need to ha have savings because 
um, you know, the money appreciates. So if you save, if you buy the house today, you get this kind of house. But if you wait one more year, the same amount of money can buy you an even better house. So you wait. Everybody saves and everybody uh, delays consumption. And when a crisis like this comes along, your savings go a longer way because people are reducing their demand for consumer goods and Increasing the demand for cash, which is what you have. So your cash is now more desirable. So that's how a hard money counters a recession. First of all, it, well, first of all, it doesn't cause recession. There are no monetary recessions when you have a uh, pure hard money, as the Austrians explain. Um, and when we did have recessions on the gold standard, it was because the banks were always able to issue more credit on the gold standard than they had gold in reserve because they had monopolies and because you had no choice but to put your uh, gold with them rather than um, send it and spend it uh, around the world. So um, all of this leads us back to the point, which is that Bitcoin or a proper hard money or a free market economy would not have these crises happen for economic reasons. You don't just get a recession because, you know, stock markets collapse. You get a recession because there's an inflation. There's a central bank that's engaging, engaging in an inflationary monetary policy. And that leads to a big, giant crisis eventually down the line. And so... But what she says is, you know, she in her mind, there would still be monetary policy and there would still be a central bank that has to issue a credit, um, a monetary policy and has to control the interest rate. So you'd end up with monetary tightening at the worst timing when the economy needed the exact opposite. Counter-cyclical monetary policy is like oxygen. When it's around, you take it for granted. When it's missing for five minutes, you scream. I doubt that you can scream if you've been deprived of oxygen for five minutes. But I'm going to let this slide. Stefano, you're a doctor, right? I think. No, I'm not. My wife is. Your wife is? Okay. Yeah, well, no, it's not really going to allow you to scream. But we'll let that one slide. We have bigger fish to fry in her thread. Um, so then she goes on about the COVID recession, blah, blah, blah. And then she I says. I love the, the analogy, real quick, that you, you put, put out there that. If you're saving money, and then the government will tell you, you're not going to spend that money. I'm going to spend that for you by inflating, by printing more money. So you're not going to spend it. I'll spend it for you. The government is basically saying that. That's exactly what they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. And then she goes on and says, you know, there's the monetary policy action may be excessive, but saying the cure is to tie the hands of central banks completely is like chopping off your leg to cure a broken toe. Where do we even start with this? First of all, it's she, she clearly doesn't know what she's talking about because she says the cure is to tie the hands of the central banks completely. You don't know what tied the hands of the central banks completely. You still think there's monetary policy. <laughs> you still think the central bank has monetary policy. That is not tying the hands. That's not the hand tying that we're going after. We're going after complete disarmament. And by disarmament, I don't mean weapons. I mean, we're not tying hands. We're cutting off the hands and we're throwing them away and we're throwing away the keyboards and all the keys and all the printers. There's not going to be such a thing as a monetary policy. And in fact, that's, you know, that's not the cure. That's the, you're taking away the cause. You're not taking away the ability to cure. You're taking away the ability to cause these recessions, which are always caused by the inflation, which these people don't want to come uh, to terms with because, you know, of course, that inflation is what pays their salaries. 
And so, of course, needless to say, you know, she continues with this long thread of um, a bunch of nonsense. And then she goes on to shill a shitcoin later on because apparently Bitcoin doesn't have uh, what it takes, but uh, that shitcoin will have it. And so she can continue to enjoy, um, you know, Keynesian shitcoinery. But I think anybody who's uh, actually studied how the world uh, economy actually works will be quite clear on the fact that this is not how things work. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. In, in a society with sound money, if a crisis, like say aliens land on earth and you have to fight the aliens, that would be, that would be reason for the society to mobilize and finance that effort. You know what I mean? Like something that needed effort. If there is sound money, there's, there's still no need to print because if it's a reason good enough, like society needs to fight the aliens, people would finance that effort. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think this is really the key thing that uh, Keynesians don't want to come to terms with. You can finance government spending without inflation, with taxation or with bonds or with borrowing. So if you have a war and you have an actual real threat that actually um, drives people to understand that, oh shit, we are in deep trouble, you're not going to have trouble raising uh, money in the same way that you're not going to have trouble finding people to fight. Um, that's that's the reality, and that's why legitimate wars will witness mass. Um, you know, people will volunteer to join an army in a in a in a legitimate war. But when it's an illegitimate war, people don't care. And so, people in England in 1914, you know, they were highly civilized people who had had many decades of peace and prosperity. And they hadn't experienced conflict in England, and they didn't want to fight. And they saw no, they saw no reason uh, to want to invest in the murder of uh, Germans and Austrians and uh, various other uh, European peoples. And they didn't. And I think 
you know, the same thing, if, if we'd had Bitcoin at that time, I think the government wouldn't have been able to do what they did. If we had Bitcoin, then they would have had a small amount of money for the war and they would have had to um, revise their military strategies. You know, they would have had to decide, all right, well, what we're going to do is, you know, um, maybe invade um, France or Italy or pick one and just invade there and um, fight a limited war in uh, some area. Um, they wouldn't have gotten in or into a four-year war. That's really the key thing. But if there was a legitimate uh, war, if there was a legitimate uh, attack on England, you would not have had trouble mobilizing people. So I think, you know, it's very telling that uh, people didn't want to. Of course, the propaganda today makes World War I sound like it was really important for England and America to defend the war against, you know, the German Kaiser. What? Why? What was he doing? Um, there was really no reason behind the First World War. There was no logical reason. It was just a bunch of small tensions that escalated into massive uh, conflict because these people had uh, money printers. And so without the money printers, you know, the war would have ended and it was um, England, you know, what would England have lost if it hadn't gotten into the war in the first place or if it had uh, stayed down in the war for a few months and then had to pull out? Um, most likely, you know, in, in whatever case, nobody was going to invade England. Um, that was never on the cards during World War One. But continuing to um, do this eventually did bring... Uh, uh, German uh, uh, aerial bombardment of England, which was, um, you know, deeply destructive. So, uh, yeah, you, if, if, if you have legitimate uh, wars, you can raise money for it. If, you if the aliens really do come, you know, people are going to want to join anybody who thinks they have a good way of fighting the aliens. You don't need inflation to make it happen. But... Um, you know, that's not likely to be very convincing with people whose salaries depend on inflation. And kind of like a small conclusion is that inflation is basically coercion, removing the choice of people to to choose where they want to allocate their money. Because, yeah, it's the government make the, making the choice for you. Yeah. Although I have to say, I think, you know, to be fair, it was coercion up until 2009. Um, before then, you had no choice but to use government money and you had no choice but to have a bank account if you wanted to engage in economic activity and so to expose yourself to the risk of government inflation destroying your livelihood and your business. But today you have an option. You have, a, uh, you have an exit. And so now I, you can't really sympathize with victims of inflation as being victims of coercion as much because... Uh, you know, they choose to hold their uh, balances, their cash balances in fiat, and they choose to use fiat. And so uh, they should expect, you know, when you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. Anybody else got any other Twitter threads they want to go through? Hey, Saif, this is Stefan, not a Twitter thread. Um, so about the topic of education, um, you know, from, from the call we had yesterday, which was very interesting, and also some of the comments you made today. Um, so I'm relatively new to Bitcoin, so I'm trying to get my way around, and I, I'm, I'm finding it very interesting. Um, so, so my question is about the following. So first, um, 
you mentioned that economics is extremely complex as a discipline, and I had the same observation. It's extremely difficult to understand what economists are talking about, and they make all these wild assumptions, um, try to simplify a complex system. They have a lot of mathematics that it's very difficult to understand, right? And when you understand something, you realize that it's really disconnected from human nature. Um, so there is, there is a lot of complexity behind economics. One thing I'm finding with Bitcoin is that there is some complexity there too. And um, after a few months, I'm starting to get a better idea of what it is and how it works. But to be honest with you, to the layman, if you need to explain Bitcoin, it, it's just very difficult. And most people don't understand what it means, what it is, how it works, right? Um, you are doing a, a great job and try to simplify that. So the first question is, if you were to explain Bitcoin to a, to a layman, how would you do that? Well, I would write the Bitcoin standard. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a shorter uh, way, like, you know, something that I can explain to my wife or my daughter or a family member who's not, who's not um, interested in that. I think, I think the, um, I, I think the, you know, the, the starting point that allowed me to start explaining things, you know, I've been trying to do this for quite a while and uh, it's not easy to communicate it. But I think uh, a lot of uh, a lot of Bitcoiners get stuck in the um, get stuck in the quicksand of trying to explain the technical aspects of Bitcoin, which I think is completely counterproductive in uh, for beginners because you know uh, when you want to learn to drive you don't learn how uh, the electric fuel uh, injection works and you don't learn how the uh, internal combustion engine works you focus on the user end of things you know this is where you put the gas this is where you hit the brakes this is where you steer the wheeling and you have the gears so the whole thing works um the whole thing you know, most people don't know how cars work. They don't know how airplanes work. What they need to see is they need to see it work. And once they see it work and they can demonstrate, they can try it out and they can see that it works, that's it. You know, once you understand that the refrigerator works because you put the food in it and you come back three days later and the food is still looking decent, that's it. You know, you see it with your own eye. You see that it does it. You don't need to dig into... Um, uh, hours and hours of studying the engineering behind it. That's ultimately what I think is the case, um, at least when you're beginning with beginners. If you want to make it intuitive, if you want to make them understand what's going on, you want to begin from the point of um, explaining the end user experience. And so for me, what I say is this is a currency, just like any other currency with the difference being that there's no central bank behind it and there's nobody in control of it and nobody can take it away from you and you can send it anywhere you want in the world and nobody can make more of it. This is functionally what it is. You know, it's a currency. Um, you know, the, under the hood, it is very different from the dollar. But for the user experience, you know, you're going to end up with... Um, you know, you can use dollars, you can use Bitcoin. There are different ways of using dollars and Bitcoin on your phone and on your computer and um, with physical forms and uh, physical wallets and uh, open dimes and checking accounts. And there are all these different possibilities. But at their essence, there's a thing called the dollar behind them. And Bitcoin is like the dollar. It's just another currency. It's, it's like the dollar in being a currency. 
um, functionally speaking, even though, you know, people might have different definitions about what a currency is and Bitcoin is or isn't a currency. I don't care much about definitions and I don't care about arguing about definitions. If you see in my book, I, I don't spend a lot of time on definitions. I prefer to focus on the function. Um, whatever you think is the... Um, Whatever you think is the um, function, uh, whatever you think is the underlying technology, I think is difficult to communicate. So you focus on the function. You focus on the fact that you can use this and you can make more uh, Bitcoin out of it. You, you can uh, you can have more possibilities for sending and receiving Bitcoin around the world by using this. And you can protect your wealth from inflation. These are really the selling points that you want to tell uh, people. I think this is really the most uh, productive way of going about it. Um, then, um, you know, uh, here you get into the kind of what I find to be the counterproductive questions for uh, beginners is when they start. Um, and, and this is kind of like the the, the standard course of particularly people who aren't very bright, is when they start poking holes with kind of, you know, asking those gotcha questions. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, from my experience, I think this is like, um, the, the, this is, uh, you know, when you, when you start approaching this from the perspective of the gotcha, then I'm sad to report that you're just, uh, you're not likely to be very bright because, Sure, there are ways in which this can break, and but you're not going to discover them after three minutes of somebody explaining to you what Bitcoin is. You know, three minutes ago, you didn't know what Bitcoin is, and it's been running for 12 years. If your first reaction is to find a way how this is going to stop working without first asking yourself, well, why hasn't this uh, stopped it from working for 12 years, and feeling confident enough to waste the time of somebody who's been doing this for a while uh, with this idea, I think it's... Um, you know, if you think you're so smart that you can just come up with the way to break Bitcoin in five minutes or 10 minutes or the way why it can't work, and you think you're so smart that A, nobody has thought about it, and B, the person in front of you who has studied this thing extensively has not thought about it, and thinking of it as a gotcha and becoming a little bit kind of, you know, as most no-coiners are, kind of aggressive about it because you're challenged by this thing and you think, oh, well, no, well, obviously it can't be working because, you know, there's not... Then you know I'm sorry for uh, I'm sorry you were born on the wrong uh, side of the bell curve, <laughs> but uh, I wish you a quick recovery, and I think Bitcoin can help you recover if you. Um, th at this point, you know what what I find constructive is I'll tell them, well, you know, yeah, maybe it's going to get hacked. By all means, please go ahead and try and hack it. And um, if you don't want to hack it, at least try and ask yourself why nobody has hacked it before and go study the technical aspects of it. And, you know, you could point them to some technical references. Like my book is, provides a good introduction to how it works and how the economics of it works. And then they can dig into other books for uh, the technical aspects of it. But I think, you know, I, I like to prefer when I'm talking to people, I, I like to focus on the um, user experience i'm trying to give them you know at the end of the day this thing is useful because it's the best saving account ever invented and so if you accumulate money in it you figure out how to store it safely and you accumulate money in it and you can uh you keep accumulating and you benefit from the built-in number go up technology 
that's really the best way to do it. So get in with money that you don't need over the next few years. You know, put for yourself a four-year time horizon minimum so that you want to hand you you won't need to sell this money in four years. Uh, so use it, save in Bitcoin with money that you um, are willing to sit on for four years, ideally, and adding as much as you can into it. And then over time, it accumulates. So I'll show them a DCA calculator sometimes and tell them, you know, here's what would have happened if five years ago you bought $100 worth of Bitcoin um, every week, for instance. This is what it would have ended up today. And like, honestly, I, I, don't, I, I don't see there's much point. It, 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 um, it's honestly like, I've wasted so much of my life arguing with smart asses who don't know anything, but they want to tell you that, oh, no, well, this clearly can't work. It's honestly something that I truly avoid. Like, I just try to end these conversations because there's no limit to how many stupid ideas idiots can come up with in terms of, oh, no, but, you know, I can, I'm going to hack it. Or, you know, well, of course, they're not going to hack it. They don't do anything. They just come up with words. They're going to hack it. They're going to ban it. They're going to confiscate it. They're going to um, uh, do this and this and that. And like, you know, f ask yourself uh, why uh, this hasn't happened and try and answer it. And, and, and I'll tell them, you know, if you have, uh, like, if, if the approach of asking questions is positive in a sense of, you know, uh, okay, so what, why, why is there only 21 million? Why can't it be increased? Then, yeah, you can you you can elaborate on that and point them in the small directions of you know why this and this and that. But I think generally, when when the tone is uh, hostile, then uh, you just have to disengage and tell them to have fun staying poor. And a lot of people hate Bitcoin. I've like don't don't take it personally when people in your friends and family start getting aggressive about it because. It's really, really, uh, first of all, you underestimate how much people who watch TV um, don't think. These people just don't have brains of their own. You're, you know, it's like, you, you know how cloud computing works where, uh, you know, you're running, let's say you're using Google Docs. Well, the Google Doc uh, is not stored on your computer. It's stored uh, on Google servers. And so effectively, you're working with Google servers. And so you need to, remember that when you're talking to a lot of people that you're not talking to your friend John you're talking to CNN uh, they watch CNN every day and so uh, and, and the way that it works is if you hear an idea repeated seven times I think I've heard this somewhere I'm not sure if seven is the right number but you know for most people if you hear an idea repeated then you take it for granted and then um, the more it gets repeated the more it becomes part of your worldview and then the more that challenging this worldview becomes threatening to your identity you know you're saying i'm wrong and for people on the left end of the on the left side of the bell curve you know being wrong is a massive blow to the ego it's something that they can't really stomach and so they can't accept the idea that you know uh, you're <laughs> you're contradicting my server uh, you're contradicting the cloud computing server um, that controls what you're interacting with at this point. So I heard on CNN that masks work. I heard on CNN that, um, you know, uh, we need to stay home for six years in order to stop respiratory diseases. I heard on CNN that I should wear uh, sunscreen at home and uh, to protect me. And it's it's very hard to argue with those ideas because, uh, you know, and, and you see the reaction is, 
you know that it's it's hopeless when the first reaction is not, oh, really, you know, why this, why not that? What is your perspective? No, the first reaction is, that's so stupid or that's so silly and that'll never work. Once you're starting off from that, you know, you know you're dealing with a cloud computing device and that's connected to CNN or um, New York Times or something like that. And there's no point in uh, spending much time engaging um, because with Bitcoin, you know, there's been so much negative propaganda against Bitcoin over the years. It's um, it's the price we have to pay for uh, getting in early. Like, it's just a constant stream of people who are just um, laughing and pointing and, um, uh, um, you know, telling you what their server uh, has instructed them to say. I feel there's also uh, an aspect of time preference when I'm talking with friends about Bitcoin and they always talk about, oh, but hey, Dogecoin went up 10% yesterday. And I'm like, it's, it's a matter of time preference. People are looking to like get something out of it like immediately. And I think learning and studying Bitcoin helps you lower your time preference and understand that you're not thinking about how much I'm gonna get out of it if it's only number go up you're looking for you're not looking looking for it for tomorrow you're looking at it in a four-year horizon in a 10-year horizon and this is also the study of bitcoin helps broaden the time horizon and expand it yeah and a lot of people just don't have that idea i think this is this is something that i am coming to terms with um with a lot of people i know which is that uh it's it, it's impossible to communicate to a lot of people who are alive in this world of today the idea of providing for your future self four years from now it's just you know what do you mean four years from now why would i say for four years from now four years from now i'm going to be working and i'm going to be making a lot of money and i'm going to be spending from that i don't need to be saving i want to be borrowing today and paying back tomorrow so everybody thinks like that so when you tell them yeah you know go save money they think you know why is this weirdo acting like my grandmother that's their kind of initial reaction my grandmother or great-grandmother who lived under the uh, gold standard and remembers the time when she could save she used to always tell me to save but you know clearly she she is not interested she's not um uh, familiar with all of the um, intricacies of the way the fiat works and it's true in the fiat system you want to borrow and that's what I talk about extensively in the fiat standard the fiat standard the fiat system works in a way in which every time you borrow money new fiat is created and so if new fiat is created that's basically mining new fiat and that increases the money supply and that, uh, the, the, there's a huge incentive for it. It's uh, every time you borrow, you're devaluing everybody else's money. And so um, you win from borrowing. So everybody needs to borrow and everybody should use their money as collateral for borrowing. And um, everybody understands this and everybody sees it. And it takes a lot to be able to make the jump to the Bitcoin world where, you know, I'm not going to use this money as collateral for borrowing or as a down payment, I should say, not collateral. When I was saying earlier, you know, you don't buy a house. If you have $100,000, you don't buy a house for $100,000. You borrow and buy a house for a million and you keep paying for 30 years. And in effect, it is rational because it's going to end up being much cheaper to buy the house uh, in debt because your debt is in fiat. You're shorting fiat. You're shorting an asset that's devaluing. And so you're gaining by devaluing. Uh, you're gaining from the devaluation of the asset. Um, and it's going to become much, much cheaper if there is hyperinflation because then 
you effectively get the house for free or for close to free. Um, so this is, this is a major impediment, I think. It's uh, it, a lot of people just uh, don't uh, can't get it. And say, so one other comment is that at least that's been my experience, and I can see playing out in some friends and families that hardly anyone really thinks about what is money. It's not something that we've been taught anywhere, right? We just assume it exists. We assume that the government creates it and maintains it. And, you know, you go to school, high school, college, there is no personal finance education. There is hardly anything about these kind of topics. And so for most people, they just assume that they are what they are because that's the way it's always been, right? Um, and I think, I mean, your book does a great job about that. But personally, it's been the first book I read we actually explains or try to explain what is money, right? Well, how does it impact our life, our society, and, and the functioning of, of, of a good society? How is that connected to money? I never thought about that before. Um, and I'm realizing that it's very important. That's why I'm attracted to it. But this is something that's missing in every education system that, that I can see. And that's why for most people it's difficult. At least that's my, my um, observation. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know we were just talking about education with Daniel um, and yeah. with uh, uh, with Jeff Davidson from the uh, Sailor Institute, and I think it's a it's 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 a great example of how institutional education just uh, mm -hmm. or fiat education you know will tend in ways that suit the bureaucrats, and so you're constantly getting all kinds of irrelevant bullshit propaganda and trivia. You know, there's a lot of trivia that you learn in in schools that is completely irrelevant for your life. Like, why the hell do they teach people about dinosaurs? It's incredible. It's incredible. They teach school children about dinosaurs. They make them memorize names of dinosaurs that have been extinct for 80 million years. It's amazing. It's like an exercise in just, um, you know, establishing dominance over your brain by making you sit there and remember the names of things that you will never encounter, have no reason to know anything about. You know, some kids get obsessed with dinosaurs and they like to collect toys. Okay, I guess, you know, if you like to collect dinosaur toys, but there's, nobody is going to need dinosaurs in their uh, daily life. Nobody's gonna meet them, nobody's gonna eat them. You know, imagine how much more benefit we would get if they would teaching school children instead of dinosaurs, they were teaching them about the animals that they eat and you know the uses of those animals and how we've lived with them and how our culture in this part of the world has coexisted with this animal for very long. Very little about that kind of useful stuff. Um, but of course, and, and, and of course, very little about money because you know there's very little market feedback on what is necessary and what is important. But um, even more important than that is that you have very little about, uh, I mean, the reason the driving that is not just that fiat education is incompetent. It's also because obviously there's an interest in not, um, exposing that. Like if people actually understood what and how money works, it's not going to be very pleasant. Like if you start thinking really hard about why do we need inflation, you can't escape the conclusion that this is benefiting some people a lot more than uh, others and that it is hurting a lot of people. And, uh, you know, schools don't want to do that. And schools don't want to teach that stuff. They want to teach you everybody's equal, everybody's fun, everybody's, uh, everybody's uh, being fairly treated by our very wise and uh, generous overlords. And say so one, one follow-up on the education part, 
Um, I would like to learn a bit more about the technical aspects of Bitcoin. Um, I know that yesterday Jeff Davidson mentioned that there will be a, a more technical course coming up on Taylor in, in a few months. Um, so until then, do you have any recommendation in terms of some sort of seminar, online class, in-person class, anything that will allow me to learn a bit more about the technical aspects of how it works? I think um, Jimmy Song runs a, a good, has a good book called The Programming Bitcoin. We've hosted Jimmy in the podcast before. Okay. And he also organizes a, an in-person course where he meets with people and, um, you know, around Bitcoin events and conferences, he'll organize a course where they'll... Uh, and and it's like a two day course, but it's high in, uh, intensity. And you you walk out. You have to have some. Uh, you have to have some uh, Bitcoin coding, some coding background. It's not for complete beginners. But if you have some coding background, you come out of it knowing how to program things on Bitcoin and how to work on Bitcoin. I think that's highly valuable. A lot of people have uh, recommended it to me. I, I haven't taken it myself, but a lot of people have recommended it. So I think that's a, a good place to start. Okay. Stefana, Thank you. Do you yes. run your own node? No, no, no. I'm very new, Flavio, to, to Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, only a so am I. I. I started like really diving into it just mm -hmm. this year. But I, I bought one of those Umbrella, I mean, the Raspberry Pi, and then I'm running an Umbrella node. And it's super user friendly. The interface is beautiful. It's very, uh, yeah, very simple. But I think it helped me so much, like, really understand the blocks and uh, you're mm -hmm. sending a transaction and you, you choose your fee and you see, oh, I put the fee too low. Then it went to the next block. It's not getting through. Okay. And what's, what's called helps. Slavio? Can you repeat the so, name or maybe put it in the chat? Uh, yeah, it's getumbro.com. Okay. Confirm. Thank you. And they, they give you the list uh, items to buy to run your node and it's open source. I think mm -hmm. someone here in the group might probably also run a node. Yeah, well, I use I use the Noddle node, which is uh, which comes out uh, comes ready with all of the things and um, and ready to uh, ready to rock and roll uh, straight out of the box. And they're also the sponsors of this podcast. I recommend these. Oh, that's great! Yeah, yeah. Uh, in general, running a node, I think, gives it like hands-on experience on seeing how the network is, how crowded it is, how much you pay for your transactions. You can start running some lightning channels, which is fun as well. I'm, I'm like starting to route some, uh, forward some payments through my node and seeing like the lightning network grow. It's pretty interesting. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, Stefano? Yes. Andreas Antonopoulos' book, Mastering Bitcoin, is still, a, it's, it's an old book, but it's pretty relevant uh, still for just explaining Bitcoin structure. Thank you, Nathan. I'm actually reading The Internet of Money by Antonopoulos, um, which is more high level. But yes, um, thank you. This is, uh, this is very helpful. I saw something yesterday that uh, I spent 50 years developing software. And when voice over internet protocols started being a thing i could not wrap my head around that and i still can't it it just should not work <laughs> but yesterday i heard an explanation of level three they don't call it voice over 
internet protocol, of course, but that's what it is. But it's over the Lightning Network. It's a level three protocol. And the explanation of it is absolutely mind-boggling. I, I, and it's already being tested. This isn't pie-in-the-sky stuff. And after you listen to that, these phone calls can be made, and they're all paid for and financed through the Lightning Network. And no one knows they happened. There's no, there's no evidence that this phone call ever existed. Anyway, if you start thinking about that and branch it out, what, what sense does Ethereum make? What sense do any of these other coins? I mean, look at what Bitcoin is doing. And people just do not seem to see it. I hear the complaints about how Bitcoin is constrained, yet all the evidence uh, suggests just the opposite. There's such a, uh, it's just a massive resource behind this thing. Anyhow, I, I found that pretty mind-boggling. What's the name of this protocol? This voice uh, protocol over Lightning? There's several of them. I, I, if, if you I apologize, I don't remember. Could could probably uh, yeah, it could probably be Google. I think yeah, if that's you so just, uh, I think if you just search for level three protocols, level three Bitcoin protocols. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, I think it's high time preference too. People just want the centralized solution to to solve everything oh, it, for them. Yeah. It's nuts because these phone calls can actually involve thousands of lightning network channels. <laughs> it's, it's totally impossible. <laughs> you're not relying on Facebook or Google to transfer your call, right? To transmit your call. Yeah, you're That's relying amazing. on the world and relying on no one. Yeah. Wow. I wanted to add something about you know, why it's hard to talk to other people about Bitcoin and certainly agree with, you know, Saifedean that people are getting their information from one place and that's all they know. Um, but additionally, I think over the last two years from like the Trump years leading up to the recent election, social, if people are on social media, they've been so polarized. And so everybody has been deeply divided into two camps. And there's all this mounting suspicion if someone is with you or they're against you. And um, if you're talking about something like Bitcoin, um, it, it probably means, you know, people become suspicious. They get defensive. You're not in their camp. Suddenly you're like a fiat denier or something like that or a government denier. So I think it, we can see very quickly, if, like Safe Dean says, if there's a little defensiveness, if there's some pushback, just let I just let it go and walk away. Um, and I think like, yeah, just saying broke. I don't actually say it. Um, but for people that if there really is a little bit of interest there, um, definitely, you know, the approach of talking about how it can change your life and also just understanding, well, no one trusted the internet when it came out. So if anyone here remembers, like it was like, well, what's the internet for? What would you ever do on it? Or 
you know, I would, I remember people saying I would never have a website. I would never shop on the internet. I would never put my credit card information into the internet. So that's where, you know, that's how we can look at Bitcoin too, is we might not understand the whole thing, but look where the internet went. But, you know, Bitcoin is whatever, saves the world. But yeah, there's so much polarization now. It's very hard to talk about things that people have been um, polarized to hate or be suspicious of. Very true. If I can just um, just add something quick, Stefano, I'm pretty new to this as well. Um, so this is, I just think that in this group, and not to, you know, flatter Stefano or anyone here, but I just felt like learning at this level. Um, there's a lot of Bitcoiners that don't even really discuss it at this level. And a lot of people are still into crypto in general mm-hmm. and don't focus on Bitcoin. So it's just, I feel like the focus here in this community is very um, real and something you can actually use going forward. And it just, it takes away a lot of the noise. Um, I think another thing is the age group. I find talking to folks, um, over certain age, they're, they're not as technically savvy. Sometimes they're very opposed to it, or they may have their savings and feel very comfortable with their um, with their finances already. So they're just not interested. Whereas young folks um, in their twenties and even younger, they're all over this, um, and they look for those opportunities. So it's just, I just think it depends on who you talk to. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think one of one of the challenge, at least something I'm thinking about, is you mentioned Marquita, right? Is you know, I have some savings. What do I do with them? Um, do I leave them in cash? Do I put them in gold? Do I buy stocks? Do I buy Bitcoin? Do I buy real estate? My approach right now is to do a little bit of everything, but I'm trying to figure out, um, you know, having a 10, 20, 30 years window, what shall I do? And, and that's so I'm looking for practical, actionable knowledge that I'm trying to get um, to best position myself, my family, my friends, and, and ultimately my community, right? Uh, for the long term, that, that's my goal. And you're in the right place, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I wouldn't question that. But uh, like like Tiffany said, depending on the questions, uh, these are great questions. And I, I, I make sure I come up with amazing questions to help me dig further into my rabbit hole to understand it more. Um, Mm -hmm. But the constructive questions will get you exactly where you need to be. And Saif, can I ask another practical question? Have you you tried to live off Bitcoin, meaning use Bitcoin for, I'm not to say the day-to-day transaction, but some of the key expenses and and necessities that you need in your life? Uh, If you want to, would you be able to do that? What do you think? Um, I have not. Um, I have not tried to do that. Um, the vast majority of uh, people I uh, buy things from don't take Bitcoin. So, um, I mean, there are places where you can get a Bitcoin credit card or debit card, um, but uh, I, I haven't found that uh, compelling. And um, um, it, it's not. It, it's not available where I am. So, I generally, I just think. For most, like I, I don't have the, um, I don't have this kind of activist mindset of, let's spend money with Bitcoin in order to make Bitcoin win. Initially, when I first got into Bitcoin, there was a little bit of that, you know, 
Um, but I quickly got over this because thinking of it from the Austrian perspective, um, initially, you know, the initial idea was when you start believing that Bitcoin works after a couple of years of being, um, um, you know, uh, being skeptical that it can work. Uh, when you start thinking, all right, well, maybe this thing is going to actually work. You think, well, you know, we're just, I'm going to tell somebody this is better money. They'll tell somebody else. They start using it. Everybody tells everybody else. And then, you know, within a couple of months or a couple of years, this whole thing takes off. And, uh, you know, it'll take off from the grassroots. You tell your uh, uh, barista and <clears throat> I'll tell my uh, waiter and uh, you tell your taxi driver and then this will take off. But, uh, you know, obviously, first of all, it's very hard to tell them on it. And secondly, I really don't think this is, uh, you know, as I studied it more and more, I think the adoption for Bitcoin is not going to be determined. It's not going to be driven by transactional demand. It's not going to be driven by people going out of their way in order to spend Bitcoin to buy their coffee. The adoption is going to be driven by people accumulating cash balances in Bitcoin. That's the key driver of adoption. We have a scoreboard of all the caches in the world, all the things that can be used as cash, and that includes bonds in my mind. It, it includes uh, AAA-rated bonds, which are effectively cash. Um, it's the most liquid market, and it's what people use as a cash substitute for holding value into the long term to compensate for inflation. So um, I would, uh, I, I think if you want to help Bitcoin, you want to make your Bitcoin cash balance grow as much as possible. And so you want to spend and earn and organize your finances in the way that is the most efficient and not in the way that makes statement or not in a way that is activist. You know, you don't want to waste time trying to talk to the waiter. You don't want to waste the waiter's time, incidentally. Please stop talking to your waiters about Bitcoin. They have better shit to do with their life. On behalf of, uh, <laughs> on behalf of all the Bitcoin, well, all, all the uh, waiters of the world, I'd like to petition all of my listeners to please stop trying to sell your waiter and taxi driver. I mean, taxi driver makes sense because he's sitting next to you and if he's willing to listen, then okay. But waiters generally are busy. And uh, like it, it, it's, it's not going to matter. It's, it's not going to be driven by a consumer saying, um, well, okay, I'm going to start accepting Bitcoin in my cab or in my restaurant. That's going to come as a step after that person already has a significant cash balance in Bitcoin. And a large number of their customers and clients and suppliers also have large cash balances in Bitcoin. So with that, um, you know, I think it's, 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 it's the struggle to grow the cash balances and that's what's going to uh, matter the most. So for me, I, I don't particularly care about all of these uh, ideas of, you know, let's strengthen the Bitcoin circular economy by accepting only Bitcoin. I've, I accept Bitcoin on my website and I think it's great. And there was a time when I had trouble with my banks because I was moving around and I wasn't able to uh, do the paperwork necessary to keep the website running at some point. And so um, for a few months, uh, the, the fiat payments were down on my website when I first started. And it was great to have Bitcoin then. I was Bitcoin only at that time. Um, but then I got it fixed and I went back to Bitcoin and fiat. 
and uh, I, I have no problem with it. I think it's. Uh, I don't look at Bitcoin as um, as the kind of cause that requires you to sacrifice in order for it to succeed. This is the thing. This is not a political revolution where people need to, you know, uh, sacrifice themselves and sacrifice their financial well-being in order to bring Bitcoin about. If this was the case. If that was needed for Bitcoin to work, I would not be interested in Bitcoin, I think. I'm, I don't think political activism is something that is uh, uh, likely to succeed, and it's not something that I would like to spend my time on. I think Bitcoin succeeds precisely because it is compatible with economic incentives. In other words, Bitcoin makes it so that you benefit from it. And if you're not benefiting from it, then trying to force it is counterproductive. So... Um, I think people should just, uh, uh, I mean, I, I speak for myself, obviously people should do whatever they want, but I think for, for myself, I find it more productive to just, uh, you know, spend fiat uh, and uh, uh, keep your Bitcoin as much as you can. But I recognize that this isn't going to last forever. I think the opportunity of spending fiat is going to dwindle with time as Bitcoin cash balances continue to increase. You'll, you're going to get more and more people that prefer to get paid in Bitcoin, that offer you discounts in Bitcoin, and then um, maybe even refuse to get paid in fiat. I think eventually that's kind of the end game because um, that's where it leads. But for now, you know, we still need to increase the size of the Bitcoin economy by maybe another 100x to start thinking about that. So you think so we're you think still very early, early in, in the Bitcoin economy? Very much so. I think if you look at global cash balances uh, and global cash substitute balances, you know, you've got national currencies, checking accounts, and um, government bonds, and the AAA-rated bonds in general. If you have all of these, if you look at all of these, you know, there's maybe $100 trillion, and you add gold and probably index funds as well. These are a form of store of value saving. People aren't actually investing. And uh, uh, so you, you add all of that demand, I think. You know, Bitcoin is still probably less than 1%. Depends on how you count, but it's less than 1% overall of all of that demand. And so therefore, um, when you are trading with somebody else for anything, the odds that their cash balance is in Bitcoin and that they are willing to accept a payment in Bitcoin and make a payment in Bitcoin are very low. It's 1%, probably less than 1%, even because um, these balances are usually, for most people, a smaller fraction of their uh, overall wealth. So for most people, it's um, uh, it, it's a low chance that you're going to come across somebody who's willing to uh, you know, sell you apples for Bitcoin. They, if they have an Apple business, they are, um, you know, they have suppliers and workers that they want to pay, and those people are still plugged into fiat, and he still needs to make his payroll from fiat, and he's going to prefer to get paid from fiat. Adding steps of conversion, in my mind, is just adding, uh, adding uh, friction and adding transaction costs that ultimately ends up uh, taking away precious sats from you. I mean, obviously, this is this is how I see it from my perspective, given the options that are available for me. But perhaps for somebody else, it might make more sense to get a Bitcoin debit card and only spend uh, from Bitcoin. And I think some people do that. Um, I haven't looked into this uh, personally. And there is a risk there, which is, you know, uh, you can't really manage your uh, budget properly because of Bitcoin's volatility against fiat. 
Um, so if you're keeping only cash money for spending in that account, you, you need to actively manage it, which, um, because if the bit, if this, um, you know, the Bitcoin price falls, then you don't have enough money for the rest of the month. So you need to top up from your other Bitcoin balances, which can, um, it's, uh, it, you know, it, it's up to you whether you think that the cost of running this balancing stuff is worth it uh, in terms of the extra Bitcoin appreciation. I see Pavao is saying, I have a Bitcoin debit card and use it for everyday spending for the last eight months, but it does need active zero-based budgeting. Can you tell us more, Pavao, about what you mean about this? Yeah, hi. Uh, so, yeah, basically uh, what happened uh, over the last, uh, I would say, six to eight months is that uh, naturally my cash balance uh, kind of uh, grew uh, so much. My cash balance in Bitcoin uh, grew so much that it uh, kind of uh, uh, dwarfed my fiat balance. And uh, since... Uh, in the last year, most of my income is also uh, paid in Bitcoin. Um, I just uh, find, found myself having to uh, exchange Bitcoin to fiat to in order to pay for my, you know, living expenses. And uh, currently, it's actually extremely convenient. I actually use Apple Pay every day. Um, I do use Binance uh, as my kind of uh, Bitcoin bank. And I deposit uh, some Bitcoin on Binance from my uh, cold storage. And then uh, they do have the, the debit card, which they issue you for free. And uh, at the point of uh, purchase, you are basically selling the, the appropriate amount of Bitcoin to fiat. And they are processing the fiat payment. And all of that is done instantly. And uh, it's very convenient. As I said, I use it uh, on my Apple Pay. So, so everywhere where um, Visa and MasterCard credit cards are, are uh, accepted, I can pay. I can also withdraw cash on every single ATM from every bank. Um, the only issue with, with this is that you do need to have uh, zero-based budgeting a system, which means that all of your... Uh, all of your money, all of your cash balance needs to be uh, assigned to, to categories uh, before you spend it. And I use a software for that, which I use for three years already. Uh, it's called You Need a Budget. So you can go to youneedabudget.com. It will take you around, uh, I'd say, a couple of months to get used to it. They have extremely well uh, done uh, knowledge base. And uh, once you get used to assigning all of your cash balance to, to, to the categories that you need to uh, and use the, use the app to when you, when you are spending. So for me, whenever I spend um, uh, for anything, I do uh, enter that transaction in the app. And then because of the Bitcoin's volatility, I do recon reconcile my, my, my balances every day. This takes a couple of minutes per day. But it allowed me to basically be almost zero, have almost zero exposure to, to, to fiat uh, <laughs> inflation and uh, pick up all of the gains uh, on Bitcoin. So in the last three months, when, when we had a little uh, down, downturn, uh, I just found myself 
spending a little bit less, right? Uh, and when Bitcoin is kind of uh, pumping, uh, I do find myself kind of having a little bit easier time uh, spending. <laughs> and, um, and this can work. Uh, I mean, if your government is uh, very, you know, uh, kind of uh, very heavy on intrusion and uh, requiring you to, to file your taxes and uh, whatever, which is not the case here in Croatia uh, so much, uh, then it, it may be hard, uh, I guess, because you, you would have to kind of uh, <laughs> spend a lot of time accounting for filing your taxes. But if you, don't, if, you ha- if you have a situation where you don't have to do that, at least for some time still, then I think uh, it's, it's worth it. But it takes, uh, I mean, the pre- prerequisite for all of that is that your cash balances, your, your cash balance has, has to grow so much in Bitcoin that basically uh, it's like uh, you don't have any more fiat uh, to, to, to spend, right? And uh, about, uh, do you pay capital gains on Bitcoin in Croatia? Yeah, that's what I... I mean, in Croatia, we do not have very clear uh, regulation on that. Uh, we have only one kind of opinion uh, of our tax uh, uh, office uh, in, from 2017. So there is no uh, law or anything uh, yet. And um, yeah, so basically, uh, no, so to speak. <laughs> but <laughs> good, yeah. I, I I would assume that uh, I mean, if if they have a very well, very well thought out and elaborated system on, I mean, I, I even wouldn't mind paying uh, capital gain, gains tax if I would get like, uh, I don't know, a receipt and in, in the end of the year saying, I don't know, this is 10% of the capital gains tax that you need to pay. I would say yes, but I'm not going to kind of uh, account for them and prepay them because they don't, they, they by themselves, then they don't have the, the regulation sorted out. So mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's a situation here in Croatia, in Europe. Um, it's it may not be uh, so uh, elsewhere. I, I understand mm-hmm. that, but it yeah, could but be I done. Think... I mean, living on Bitcoin can be done, uh, nice. even if even if merchants do not accept uh, Bitcoin, uh, you can still you can still use it as a, as a cash, right? For also for paying, right? So yeah, it just needs a conversion uh, at the point of of uh of sale. of sale yeah and as the the transition to the bitcoin standard continues i think they'll they'll adjust that because it doesn't make sense to pay capital gains when you're absolutely right to cash value i mean absolutely to, to make an everyday transaction though they'll come to terms for sure just a matter of yeah. time yeah yeah, I Sorry, guess. Can I ask you a very quick question on that? Um, do you? I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm just wondering. Do you? Um, uh, uh, do you think there's software out there that makes it easy to facilitate this, uh, so that you don't have to? If you do have to report taxes, because a lot of people in the U.S. say they don't like to spend their Bitcoin because the tax reporting is complicated. Yeah. Are there software solutions that just uh, make it so that you can automate this process so they calculate everything? Yes. Pay? Yes, there are. Uh, for example. Almost every exchange will have some sort of uh, exporting option for all of your transactions. Uh, I know that Binance has that. And then there are a um, couple of software 
uh, options that I have been looking at, I have to dig them again. This was uh, last year, which which basically they kind of um, calculate all of that for you and give you the the the, the report. Um, I mean, it, it can be done, and uh, even some accountants here in Croatia they started accounting for, uh, but those are more for for the so-called so crypto traders. Um, they they do that uh, service and uh but yeah it, it can it can be done although it would be a lot of transactions for me personally i mean i have i literally use it uh, for everyday transactions for uh, you know just uh paying everything uh just as as i would use uh, my local fiat currency because i'm i am paying at the end of the day in my fiat currency it's just that i'm converting sats at the point of uh you know, at the point of uh, spending, I'm converting sats to to euros and then euros to Croatian kuna, which is our local currency. And that all of that is done instantly. Uh, and the exchange fee for that is like 0.1% uh, on Binance because it's such a massive, massive exchange and it's, it's so liquid and uh, the software works very well. And it's, you know. Uh, yeah, that's something that uh, puzzles me a little bit because of the fungibility of the coin. How do you tell if the Bitcoin you're spending is the one that you bought in February this year or the one that you bought in July last year? Right? It's so subjective. It's not like yeah. a property. You know, I'm selling this property that's on this street. No, what coin? Which coin is which? It's fungible, right? After all. Yeah, it's just it's just a huge mess to to account for that. But uh, I I don't think anyone is going to. Practically speaking, account uh, for for that. They're just going to use it as cash. And yeah, uh, eventually. Here, yeah. here in the U.S., you, you move some Bitcoin off your Trezor to Gemini, split it, so you move some over to Coinbase, then you transfer that to a retailer to make a payment. What's your cost basis for tax? <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> There's going to be some interesting IRS audits off and on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So if out of curiosity, do you pay your employees in Bitcoin, fiat, or do you give them a choice? Um, well, two of them are here. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, well, generally, you know, I give them a choice. But uh, yeah, I do pay them. I, I do pay, uh, I'd say most. No. Um, there's a mix between Bitcoin and fiat. Mostly it's, uh, well, it's hard to say mostly which one it is. But yeah, it's both. Okay. Yeah, but like, so, I, I, you know, I'm not ideologically opposed to spending Bitcoin. Like, I, my book, and I think um, a lot of the uh, um, shitcoiners have usually accused me of, uh, you know, you know, when they, you want to criticize somebody, you make a, a ridiculous, uh, um, absurd version of their ideas and so a lot of people like to say that you know i'm out there telling people don't spend your bitcoin bitcoin should never be spent spending bitcoin is bad but that's not the case i'm not out there uh, in fact you know we had this discussion earlier today and if you read my books and all of my uh, public writing my twitter feed all of my podcast appearances i've never told anybody what to do with their bitcoin i have never even you know as a libertarian i don't talk from the perspective of people should like i don't say that and you and i caught myself saying it by mistake earlier uh, a few minutes ago 
and I corrected myself. That's what I should do. But of course, I, I don't generally think from the perspective of, you know, this is what people should do. That's just not how my libertarian brain works. So um, I, I totally understand that for, you know, the, um, the conditions for everybody can be um, different in particular cases. And so for many payments, you know, in my case, I've got people working in uh, my website from all over the world. Going through the bank's system can lead to uh, lost funds and it can take a lot of time and it's a pain in the ass. And uh, Bitcoin is highly convenient in that case. So it makes sense. So I'm happy to pay Bitcoin um, to my employees in this uh, case. And um, But I also understand that some of them don't want to get paid in Bitcoin and they prefer fiat for whatever reason. They need to establish income to show the bank or they need to... Uh, you know, they need it for spending money, and that's perfectly fine as well. Um, I think this ultimately, like it's it, uh, my my view is that it should. It, it, it's not it's not something that you should think, that I should think of ideologically. It's it's an economic transaction. You're trying to figure out what works easiest and fastest and cheapest, and um, that's uh, yeah. I'm I'm constantly looking to that, and I'm thinking maybe maybe it might be worth looking into the. Uh, debit card business, but uh, might be complicated as well, depending on where you are in the world. Essentially, you can always kind of, naturally, you are going to have less and less fiat. Like when you start, let's say that you you have maybe three months or six months of expenses in, in fiat. Uh, and uh, this, this, this amount of time is just going to shorten uh, over time. So right now I don't have, I, I have like maybe a week worth of, of uh, expenses in, in just in a little bit of cash uh, for, you know, paying, paying things that I just cannot pay with, with, uh, with the debit card. But for all the rest of that, uh, I mean, I just like to have, uh, I like uh, holding Bitcoin instead of fiat. I, I don't mind the volatility because the, 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 the savings in, in Bitcoin are so large that the volatility are, is not really uh it doesn't affect uh you know everyday everyday spending um so but it does take yeah it it takes it takes a while to 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 get there but uh over time i think uh, pretty much everybody will will get there but as safe says uh, it's a process of uh, replacing the cash balance uh of the of the world uh one person at a time and everyone is different everyone has the different uh, you know, income, spending, uh, you know, um, net worth, uh, the amount of assets, liabilities. Like, uh, it, it may be very stressful if you have liabilities um, of any kind, um, uh, especially when Bitcoin goes down. I mean, uh, when, when the downturn hits, it may be uh, stressful. So I would recomm- recommend uh, simply using it as, as a cash balance, get out of debt, uh, completely, and uh, then it can be it can be done. And I would cer- I certainly expect you know some uh, more more people to to accept uh, Bitcoin payments. Just uh, you know, uh, spinning up the you know their their uh, Lightning merchant mode. Uh, I think we are going to see that more. Maybe not in this cycle. Maybe maybe in the next uh, uh, cycle. Yeah. So then you will be able to spend it directly without uh, 
custodian because right now you do need custodian to convert it to fiat at the point of spending yeah i think uh i mean yeah i think we're just gonna see more and more of this with every cycle it grows more um 2013 we may have had more merchant adoption because um that was the meme back then and a lot of merchants got into this and they started installing bitpay but that was that was an example of why this didn't work and it's um, you know it's um, it helped inspire the bitcoin standard in in understanding why it was that these things weren't picking up and becoming very popular because it's just uh, adding a transaction cost on the end of the consumer and on the end of the uh, producer in most cases um and then it's just you know th there's a small minority of diehards that are willing to incur this but it's not going to pick up what we need is uh, we need economic incentive and therefore we need number go up technology to get people's cash balances up that's how it works well so just a very quick one from me yep. um the book you mentioned earlier in the conversation was it golden fetters the gold stand in the great depression by barry Green? yes yeah okay that was all, that was all. Okay, great. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining and I will see you next week. Uh, next week, we're going to be having uh, Terence Keeley, the author of the book, The Economic Laws of Scientific, uh, of, uh, Scientific Research. Uh, great book, heavily influential on me. Uh, looking forward to interviewing him. So stay tuned for the uh, email with the time uh, for when that seminar is going to be held. Okay. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cheers. Recording stuff.